0: Today, we are sharing with you a heartwarming story of the reunion between an 86-year-old grandma who was forced to flee her Ukrainian home and her beloved dog, Sasha. Now, this is an extraordinary story, but even more interesting is the person who helped facilitate this reunion. Her name is Debbie Deegan. She has traveled to Russia from her home in Ireland over 500 times during the past 25 years. She's even received Russia's highest commendation for her work with orphans in that country. And she's even dined with Vladimir Putin for three hours. Stick around, because you'll want to hear about that unforgettable meal. Debbie Deegan is our guest today. Hello, I'm James Jacobson. Welcome to The Long Leash. The invasion of Ukraine is on everyone's mind. The war is reaching far beyond Ukraine's borders. Fear and loss can be felt across continents and oceans. But what can also be felt is the incredible resiliency and determination of the Ukrainian people and those who want to help them. Debbie Deegan is one of those people. For the past 25 years, she has been working to help improve the lives of Russian orphans through her nonprofit organization. Originally named to Russia with love and later renamed to children with love. Debbie knows how to work from the outside and how to bring about change, whether it's helping tens of thousands of orphans or reuniting an elderly grandma who is separated from her beloved dog while fleeing her Ukrainian homeland. Debbie Deegan, thank you so much for being with us today.
1: An absolute pleasure.
0: So we were chatting before we hit record, and we were talking about Maui and Ireland and the fact that we are slightly geographically across the globe, but we both love dogs.
1: I just find it amazing that a dog story can actually have this conversation with you. I mean, how many hours? What time is it there, James? It's 8 in the... It,
0: it is only a 9 in the morning okay, here in so Hawaii.
1: Okay, so I'm 8 at night. So, anyway, <laughs> So,
0: 11 times, eleven Pretty much every time zone that we could imagine. Exactly. But dogs always bring us together. So, let's start our conversation with a very special dog named Tasha, who is a 13-year-old black Labrador, Right.
1: Yes, I'd say she's a bit of a mix, but she looks to me like a small labrador, but she, yeah, exactly, yeah. She's beautiful little old lady.
0: So, she is a little old lady who is from Ukraine and she belongs to another and I think this sounds pejorative, but it's not. Another Elderly lady, yes. someone who is 86 years old, Violetta. Exactly. And they are the main characters in this story. Yes. Uh, can you set the stage?
1: So I'm just one of the stage hands in this story that <laughs> moves the first. <laughs> well. well, I am, really, genuinely. So what happened was I've been running a children's charity for the last 25 years called Two Children with Love. And in general, I was focused completely in Russia as it happened since 1998. And I worked with orphans only, and I worked with them in Russia. And uh, so basically our mission was to change the children's lives there, not take them out, not try and adopt them, not try and rescue them, to change their lives there. So that was my life for the last 25 years. And after a quarter of a century, we had done all we could possibly do. So we decided to close as it happened bizarrely the week of the war began, because we had a like we had a decision at a board meeting six months ago to wind the whole thing down.
0: That is very propitious timing.
1: Uh, incredible, because we actually picked Valentine's Day, which was the 14th of February, as our closure, mm. because originally we were called To Russia with Love. And so we felt that because we brought out so much love over all the years that it was just The right feel for me that we closed on a day that represented love. And so in October, we set this date for Valentine's Day. And I think five or six days later, the war started. Mm
0: -hmm. The 24th, yeah.
1: Yeah. So it was incredible timing for us because we had, like, we couldn't have raised money for Russia with the current climate because obviously everybody's so anti-Russia now. So we were lucky that we did the magnificent work that we did in the time frame that we did it in. And I suppose in a way we were lucky that we decided it was just purely fortuitous that we closed down when we did. So because Russia and Ukraine have so many connections, certainly they had in the past, I'm not sure going forward how many they'll have. One of the children that I know dearly from our orphanage was adopted by an American family and she went to live in the States 20 years ago. And the family had adopted another Russian child as well called Yana the American family. And Yana, so Yana's from Russia. She's living in the States. So Yana phoned me six weeks ago and I was just really coming out of the emotional roller coaster that I'd been on for 25 years, which it truly was because I was like married to this project for 25 years and most magnificent children. Yana rang me and said her friend, she had an American friend in L.A., who's originally Ukrainian, and her family were trying to get out of Ukraine. Hmm. So they got as far as Romania, and they didn't know how to get any further. They got, they got stuck on the border. And so Jana phoned me from the States and said, my Ukrainian friends' family are stuck on the border. We don't know anybody in Europe. Is there any way you can help? Because I've cut connections all over Europe because of the nature of my work.
0: And part of this family was stuck. This includes Violetta.
1: Yes. So what happened was the first week of the war, all the medication stopped being delivered, actually, to most Ukrainian towns. Mm. So people were starting to get very worried. This was before any bombs had gone off in Odessa. So this little family lived in Odessa. Granny, Violetta, as I call her Granny, she is 86, and her son and daughter are in their 60s. They decided to make run for it, actually, because they could sense that trouble was coming. And I suppose they were watching the news. They could see the army tanks coming over the border. So they left Ukraine. They traveled through the night on a train through the whole length of Ukraine. They brought nothing but one suitcase between the three of them and one dog carrier basket. Violetta wouldn't leave Tasha behind. I mean, you saw so many Ukrainians bringing carrying dogs, small dogs, big dogs, and she just wouldn't leave her behind. They were her best friends for the previous 13 years. So Violetta lived in a little cottage, which I've since seen photographs of, covered in flowers and vegetables. And her grandmother was born in that cottage, and her grandmother was killed in that cottage by Hitler's army in the Second World War. Mm. Violetta was born into that cottage and had never left it in her 86 years to go and live anywhere. At 86, the war began, and she grabbed nothing but her dog. And her son came to collect her and they took her across Ukraine on a train. They got to the border of Moldova, which is coming my direction, the direction of Mm -hmm. Ireland, you know, the direction of yourselves. I think they had... Going west. They're west, exactly. They had a plan to maybe get to the States in their head somehow, because their granddaughter was there. But they got stuck on the border. Granny's, Violetta's papers were out of date by six or seven years. Her internal passport All Ukrainians and Russians have an internal passport and an external passport. And her paperwork was out of date. Bribes had to be paid on the border, which, of course, none of us realized people coming across that were being asked for money to come across into Romania, etc. And they got stuck at that point. I got called. I didn't know what I was going to do. I wouldn't have. I didn't go um, because that week, actually, as it happened, I was my daughter was having a baby. I mean, I had no idea how I was going to solve this problem.
0: Were you prepared to pounce on a plane and, and head to Moldova?
1: Well, you see, because I've been looking after orphan children for 25 years, I've pounced on many planes um, in the middle of the night to try and rescue situations. So it wouldn't be unusual to me to do something like that. I don't have the sort of work that most people would have. And so an extreme situation in the middle of the night wouldn't be that unusual to me. Whether it was a child dying or a child that had been killed, or whether it would be, you know, something awful that would have happened. And so my instinct always was, I need to get there. So it wouldn't have been that extreme to me to do that. But anyway, I sat tight in, in Dublin, where I live, and I made phone calls. We were trying to rearrange what was going on. They got through Moldova. It was snowing in Moldova. They paid a busman who left them in the middle of a field in the middle of the night. At that stage, Violetta was collapsing. She's on a stick. Anyway, actually, she's in a wheelchair at the moment, but she was on a stick. They lifted her. They got her over the Romanian border. They got onto a train in Romania, as you saw the trains. They were like something like like Auschwitz with all of these people packing onto trains. It was ridiculous. And um, at that point in time, they couldn't go any further with the dog. They were trying to carry Violetta. They had one suitcase of clothes and they... When somebody said to them, You need to put that dog down. Violetta wasn't able to do that. And so they found a Romanian family in Romania and they gave her away. I would say it nearly killed Violetta. At that stage, she just wanted to go home to her cottage. Mm. She really was losing the will to live at that point. She genuinely, I'd say, at that point, would have gone home. It was too much for her. The whole thing. Bear in mind, they had no food, it was freezing. You had to beat your way onto the trains. They were trying to get to airports. They didn't know where the next flight was going to. They had no idea what was ahead. So I advised them to get up to Vienna. And we were all watching what was happening. America was not opening its doors to refugees. Ireland was opening its doors to refugees. So I said, look, guys, get to Ireland and let's see what we can do from here. Because in general, we would be helpful, welcoming. And I thought, well, at least they'll be safe in Ireland. Mm -hmm. until they make a decision where they want to go. I went to Dublin Airport uh, to meet them. I'd never met them before. And they were wrecks by the time I saw them. They'd been traveling for about 12 days at that stage. They had had very little food. And um, they came into Dublin Airport and they were shattered. I mean, I watched...
0: And you picked them up?
1: Well, They went into a holding airport, actually, where we were giving out well, food and sandwiches, everybody was instantly getting like, as you would call it, maybe a green card. Mm -hmm. So they could instantly get this card so they could work in Ireland. They were getting like a hundred euro phone credit. So we had a whole system in place. The minute the first ones started to arrive, and now when I tell you, they were streaming down this ramp towards our old airport building. Very few men, extremely few men, uh, mostly young mothers with black circles under their eyes, Red eyes from crying. Quite a few of them had dogs under their arms. Some had cats under their arms. They had babies and buggies. They were absolutely traumatized. I mean, they were absolutely traumatized. It was chaotic. There was about eight, I think maybe seven or eight hundred a day arriving into Dublin Airport. And we were finding it very hard to cope. We're only a small country. We were finding it very hard to cope with it because it was totally unprecedented. Nobody was prepared. We didn't have anything ready for these people. So I sat with them. All Violetta could tell me about was she speaks Russian. Most Ukrainians speak Russian and I speak bad Russian. And uh, so she was telling me about her dog. She'd left her behind in Romania. All she could talk about was the dog. It was like all her trauma was wrapped up in this dog and giving away her best friend. It was like nothing else mattered to her at that moment in time. And because my own mum is the same age as Violetta, I kind of, my heart was breaking because I am a doggy person. I've always had dogs. And so I, I can't even imagine what it's like to give one away because people who have dogs, you treat it treated like your children. Mm-hmm. I know non-doggy people probably don't get that, but doggy people get that.
0: I promise you anyone who is listening to our podcast gets it.
1: So I'm sure they do. So I, in my head, I actually sent a text message to my girlfriend's group and said, girls, If it's the last thing I do, I'm getting that bloody dog off. (laughs) And somebody sent it back to me the other day. I'd forgotten I even sent it. So the Ukrainians were put on a bus in Dublin airport and they were all shunted to hotels all over Ireland. Uh So wherever we had a hotel that was empty, they were taking in Ukrainians. So I let them go off on the buses because they were getting accommodation fed. And the accommodation is as long as they need it, like maybe a year, maybe two years, I don't know. In my brain, I was thinking, okay, dog, what are we going to do about the dog? So now they got settled that night. If Violetta wasn't improving when she got settled, I thought she might forget about the dog and really settle in. But actually she didn't. And a week later she had a stroke, <sighs> a mild stroke. And she was taken to a hospital in the, in the provincial part of Ireland. And she didn't have the language because of COVID. Nobody could visit her. It was all extremely stressful. So the more I thought about this, the more I thought, we need to get this pair back together. We've got to get this pair back together. So her beautiful granddaughter that was living in America knew the family that they'd left the dog with in Romania. Oh, wow. Okay. So we had that. So we booked transport company to bring the dog across Europe, across about six borders unaccompanied, which is not easy. Now, I, as I said yesterday, when I was chatting about it um, yesterday, uh, on yesterday's podcast to somebody, I said, I did have a picture in my head of Cruella DeVille's two evil men driving the little the van. Because I was thinking, <laughs> who the hell takes dogs in cages all across Europe? Only Cruella DeVille's assistant. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I had visions like, of these little two little men in the van um, you know,
0: <laughs> and the dog bouncing around this twelve-year-old. This in in the
1: back of the van, crying for their mothers, and uh, so I, I got his number. He did speak a little bit of English, and I phoned him every morning. And um, I mean, he did think I was a mad woman somewhere. And I said, okay, <laughs> you know, I need to. Can you show her to me? And like, I was literally only sure to saying, can I see a newspaper with the date on it up behind her, so that I know it's her actually. <laughs> And, um, but I didn't really know who they were or where they were going to, you know, I think it was 300 pounds to bring her across. And anyway, he was very nice as it happened. And every day he phoned me and he showed me a video. So I have these videos of her in her little tiny cage hmm. and she's like sitting there so gentle. She doesn't obviously know where she's going. And I'm like, oh, if only somebody had been able to tell her you're on your way home, you know, she didn't know where she was going. It was just like a, a Disney movie looking at her, kind of not... I felt like it was like that, you know? Oh. And she was in her little cage and he was giving her water and she seemed fine. She was very subdued. Tail was between her legs. She definitely looked worried. She didn't know where she was going. We had her paperwork, her passport, her... What's that terrible disease that dogs have? In- Rabies. Exactly. So this man would only get her as far as the UK. The UK is not Ireland. So I had to fire out an email or a message onto a Ukraine, UK Facebook page and say, hi guys, you don't know me from Adam, but I need someone to meet this guy and mind this dog till we get go across on the ferry and collect her. So a magnificent woman in a farmhouse in the UK put her hand up and said, I love dogs. I have a farmhouse. I'll go and get her. I'll mind her. So this beautiful woman went and collected her and that was a moment for me because At that stage, I felt Tasha knew she was safe because she wasn't being brought to a pound. She wasn't, you know, I didn't know what was in Tasha's head. Mm. So this woman kept her in England, a woman called Lisa Kay. And um, two friends of mine, one of them a dog handler, got the ferry. I have a mad lunatic friend who's dog mad. (laughs) And they got the ferry to England and they drove for three or four hours to Lisa's farmhouse. Then they drove back to Dublin with Tasha. And at that stage, then we all drove three hours from Dublin where granny was living in her cottage. At this stage, we had told granny there was a likelihood Tasha was on her way, but I was afraid to say too much, James, because Mm -hmm. I was afraid Tasha would die on the way. I I didn't know if the journey would be too much for her. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we got her to the West of Ireland and there is a short video, which is extraordinary. And I'll send it to you if you haven't seen it. And Violetta gets out of a car, it's very windy, it's on the Atlantic Ocean, a small village and Granny's in her donated big red jacket and somebody had a big woolly hat and we opened the back of the jeep and um, we opened the cage and Violetta is like just, it was just such an emotional moment because Violetta was crying her eyes out. And saying to Tasha, please forgive me for giving you away. Please forgive me. I didn't mean to give you away. I had no choice. Do you understand? I didn't mean. And like, Violetta was so distressed that she'd given the dog. Even, even when she met her, she was trying to explain to Tasha why she had done it. Mm. So it was very, very emotional. And now the pair of them are back together. Violetta's is much better with her. I mean, I mean, she's definitely has been a healing influence on Violetta. Um, and they're together. I mean, they're in a cottage in the West of Ireland as refugees, you know, and I don't know the end of this story because it's a lovely, it's, you know, the whole thing is a gorgeous uh, story and all that, but it's happening in the middle of a war. And I'm not sure what the end of the story is because Violetta really wants to go home. She wants to be, live out her life in her cottage with Tasha on her knee, which is where they were. And I really don't know if that's going to happen. But as I sent a tweet to a doggy friend of mine, um, Paul Dunphy. He's uh, big on Twitter. And um, I don't tweet. And I just sent it off to him. He retweeted it. He's got a big following. And it went completely bonkers then. And then the president of Ireland has two dogs who do tweet. And they start retweeting <laughs> it. And everybody loves them. Two huge, big Bernese mountain dogs.
0: They're pretty extraordinary. I yes. follow this.
1: Well dogs. they retweeted yeah. it, of course, and then everybody was in on the story. Everybody was watching her arriving and waiting for the video to go up of the reunion. And it was and it was an extremely emotional um I mean it was just I didn't intend it to be a story like this. It just was one of those things that everybody just And also it was the week that Bucha was revealed with the dead bodies on the street. And it was a very, very dark week on all of our TV screens. Mm -hmm. So any of us that were at home watching CNN or any of these programs, it was a really horrific week. So a story like that sometimes just takes people's, I suppose it warms their heart and makes them see some hope in the the darkness, you know?
0: Well, you were an extraordinary side hand in this story, but I think I want to go in a little deeper in terms of The genesis of how all of this started, in terms of your understanding of the Russian people, because as you say, twenty-five years in Russia, I read somewhere you've been there five hundred times. Yes, that right? Uh,
1: You did your homework now somewhere. (laughs) Um, I have been there more than that, and because I'm I'm a very ordinary person, and I when I was started to fundraise in 1998, I felt the weight of fundraising on my shoulders because everybody said to me oh, you know, Russia is so corrupt. You don't bring money there. You lose your money. It'll all be gone, blah, blah. And I thought, well, you know, every time I spend money there, if I physically bring it and if I physically spend it and I physically get receipts for it, well, then and I physically watch what I'm spending it on, then I'll be able to tell anybody who gave me $10 or €5, euro, actually, your money was spent exactly where I told you it would be spent. Mm-hmm. And I, I felt that personal responsibility to people that gave me their money because, you know, we had a tiny office. We were a very small organization, but like grannies, old people came to our door and handed us in that had seen me maybe on TV or on radio and came in and gave me like 10 euro out of their pension. Mm. Now, of course, we had other other donations, big corporate donations, et cetera, et cetera. But to me, it was the grandmother and the, like the school children who might have had a sold lemonade on their doorstep and raised you know, 11 euro, you know, $10. And to me, those donations were nearly more onerous than somebody who'd give you 10,000, you know, because you, I just felt they were so personal to people. People really wanted to, they really trusted us as an organization and I didn't want to let people down. So that's why I went so many times because I watched every single penny that was spent.
0: So you you felt a fiduciary responsibility to make sure that every penny was accounted for because you were getting these small investments. And that's in Europe. But you got to understand that with all that time on the ground with Russians, you got to understand a pretty deep insight into how Russian, the average Russian thinks.
1: Yes, I did indeed.
0: Tell me a little bit about What are your impressions? You write so eloquently about that on your blog, and we will post links to that because there's some wonderful stories. But what are your insights after having spent so much time on the ground in Russia about Russians?
1: Well, uh, the war has broken my heart, you know, um, Mm. because I love Russia. And uh, there's probably not too many Westerners that are put their hand up and say, I love Russia because at the moment you're nearly afraid somebody's going to throw eggs at your house, you know? Mm or worse, but it's a beautiful country. It's spectacular in its scenery. Siberia is like, takes your breath away. It's full of really, really lovely people. So warm. My level, I'm at the bottom of the social pile. So I'm used to very ordinary people. And so they would have nothing in the orphanage. The orphanages are all in villages and out of sight of People really. You could go into a carer's kitchen in a little village house that looks like something from a fairy tale book that you'd see in Hansel and Gretel. And they would have maybe a salary of 50 euro a month. And they would have a table full of food laid out for you. They would have grown it all, like pickles, mushrooms that are pickled, all their tomatoes are pickled, apples that are pickled. They would have honey for your dessert from bees, their own bees but they would have like the plainest soup with, like we have aubergine with grated walnuts and drizzled with blah, blah, blah. They <laughs> just have like literally like clear water with chicken bits and maybe potatoes in it. And it's so simple and so humble. And um, so, I mean, on my first, the first day I walked through the gates of the orphanage, I was a young mom and I found it very, uh, I found it overwhelming because I had never, Really, I'd never been in an orphanage before. I mean, to me, they kind of existed in in a Dickens world. They didn't exist in today's world. We don't have orphanages in Ireland for the last 50 years. And so to me, it was like stepping back in time. And uh, the children started at age six and went to age 18. And they were beautiful children, magnificent looking people, beautiful big eyes and a lot of shaved heads at the time. They shaved heads purposely because lice shampoo is too dear. Um, So it was just easier to shave heads than it was to you when you couldn't afford lice shampoo. Mm. So that was one of the things we stopped because we just felt it was just so inhumane to have 12 year old girls with shaved heads. So for me to walk in through the gates, those big gates, we were there, we went first in the snow and I did genuinely think I was going to, you know, change their world in 24 hours and maybe, maybe paint the place pink and suddenly all their lives would change. I was that stupid, naive Western person.
0: I'll fix this.
1: I'll fix this in a day. And uh, of course, we TV programs showing people painting orphanages in a day. It's amazing. Buy them all a new cushion for their bed and a teddy bear and their life problems are solved. And you go back to your life feeling really good about yourself. And there was even worse cases where, you know, there was a lot of Baptists coming from all over and coming in waving Bibles and, you know, preaching Jesus to the children and then leaving. Um, And leaving the children like in (laughs) shock. You know, Mm -hmm. and uh, I found that extremely difficult to swallow because it just didn't. I just found it. I just. It was a whole new world to me. I didn't know that people did this. I didn't know that. You know, I just didn't know that this world existed. And uh, so I decided on my very first week there, I had a little girl in my arms, and I was saying goodbye after three or four days of being there, and uh, I was kissing her goodbye, and she said, "I've never been kissed before," Mm. and. I said, okay, when is your birthday? And she told me her birthday date. And I made a promise that I would come back for her birthday. And I had no charity. I had no money. I didn't marry money. I don't have money. Um, <laughs> and so I said, okay, I'll come back for your birthday. And I made that promise. And then I came home and sat and cried for a week thinking, how am I? Like, how, how? People were saying, oh, forget it. You'll settle down. You'll be grand. You'll go back to your real life. You'll be grand. Don't uh, Give yourself a week and you'll be, you know.
0: Have a cup of tea.
1: Exactly. And, uh, and I didn't, I just didn't settle. And, um, I then, I just decided, okay, that's it. We're going to have to do something about this guys. And I spoke to very good, very ordinary. I wanted ordinary people that really felt that they understood children and, and I wanted respect for these kids and I wanted, you know, I had a whole vision in my head of what I wanted. So at an early stage, we were we were really just about rebuilding the place.
0: What year was what year was this when you first? Nineteen
1: ninety eight. Okay. So me and Vladimir Putin arrived the same year.
0: <laughs> we'll get to Mr. Putin in later on. We no.
1: started our jobs the same year because he arrived in nineteen ninety eight. But I was about six or seven hours from Moscow, so I'd, and I wasn't interested in getting involved. I have used this description before, and it's so true. It's a little bit like the Yellow Brick Road and the Wizard of Oz. In the distance was Oz, like miles and miles and miles away this castle (laughs) and this huge wizard was in the castle and it was a little bit like we all stayed where you know where the munchkins are you know and so we left the wizard up in the castle and um, and then finally when you do meet the wizard it's exactly like the wizard of oz it's kind of like a small man who's pulling the strings you know
0: well this is a good time to take a break because when we come back i want you to tell the story of when you did meet the wizard, when you (laughs) had dinner with Mr. Putin. We'll be right back. And now a message from your dog.
2: Every day with you is like a day at the beach. And I want as many beach days as possible. I want to run and sniff and find a good stick to carry. I want to roll in the grass and warm my belly in the sun. I want to walk with you, run with you, sleep with you, Eat with you, and when I eat with you, I want Everpup. The green, grassy, beef liver spiked smell wakes my senses. You may not realize this, but it tastes like homemade gravy, especially when you wet it. It infuses any food you give me with health and life and vibrancy. I can feel it Everpup traveling to every cell in my body, nourishing each one. Does it roll back time? Of course not. Not really. But it helps me feel like I'm on top of the world. I'm so glad you're giving it to me every day. Because every day I'm so glad to be with you. I'm so grateful to be your dog. And for the Everpup you give me.
0: So now that you know what your dog wants, get Everpup, the ultimate dog supplement everpup is available in select pet shops and on amazon but to get the best price possible join the everpup club at everpupclub.com where you'll get your first jar for just eight dollars with free shipping anywhere in the u.s go to everpupclub.com and use the discount code dpn that is everpupclub.com everpup every day We are back with Debbie Deegan. So tell us a little bit about how you had the opportunity to dine with Vladimir Putin.
1: <sighs> um, I was 23, 23 years in Russia uh, working. Multiple medals, multiple awards. Russians love awards. And they love medals. <laughs> They're big into medals. And, and to be honest, you know, it's part of their culture. It really is. They're militaristic in the way they think. So I, I mean, I've had beautiful awards. I got an award about four years ago from an 82-year-old Russian cosmonaut female who's the first Russian female cosmonaut in space. Mm. She gave me an award with the governor of St. Petersburg and the award was for the greatest impact on social change. And really... Social change. We're used to social change in our countries. They're not used to social change. So I was coming in talking about stuff at conferences all over. I mean, obviously, I evolved while I was there, and although I I was, I'm still a very ordinary Irish mom. My role evolved while I was there because initially I did not know where I was going to begin, and I had this huge Dickensian orphanage, and um, I wanted it to be the best orphanage in the world. That was my dream. And I wanted it. I wanted the children to design it. So I had a team of children designing it from the orphanage. And the Russian builders could not cope with the fact that I had meetings with like 20 big men with big gruff voices and fur hats. Everybody wears their hats in meetings over there because it's so cold. <laughs> and um, I had my children all around the end of the table. And the children were saying, no, we want pink tiles. And they were saying, no, you can't have pink tiles because the regulations in Russia are were all written in like 1956 <laughs> And that patients were designed by psychologists, a PhDs that would say, no, you must only have like, you know, that dirty mint green that's always in vet surgeries. I don't know if you have them there, but we have them here. Yes. And uh, so everything was that kind of dirty minty green and that, and like disgusting thick brown skirting boards and doors everywhere, like painted with molasses nearly. And uh, so this
0: I, is Soviet science.
1: So I wanted sugar pink. I wanted the girls' accommodation to be sugar pink. <laughs> The boys picked a blue. We had like flowers, floral. I mean, we went for it. And we had like, there was an old, disgusting old wet room we found up a ladder one day, dark, filthy. There was a woman sitting in the corner and packed to the ceiling were old suitcases that you'd see in a Second World War movie. And I said, my God, what is this room? And the woman was there like with her piece of paper, like all good Russian women have their book on their piece of paper her job was to be in charge of the suitcases. And these were the suitcases that when every child came at the age of six, they brought with them a small suitcase and their their life was in that suitcase. Hmm. So their old shoes from the baby orphanage, maybe a photograph of their mother, maybe a file. So it was in this wet room, a hole in the ceiling. There was icicles dripping down. And I thought, oh my God, this is ridiculous. These are so precious to the children. So we decided to build an amazing suitcase room. And uh, it had white arched windows. It had like beautiful, huge white shelves. It had a sofa. So when the children came in, they could lift their suitcase down. We had, a, we had tea and coffee on tap with biscuits. And so when came <laughs> in, they could have tea or coffee, chai as it would be. And um, they could take their suitcase down, open it up. And they like, these are the children's, this, this was all they owned in the world. They didn't own anything else.
0: So they could go to the library and look at their stuff and go through their old suitcase. Wow.
1: Bright white, pink. It was magnificent. And we we did that with everything. We We wanted them all to have duvet, soft feather duvets. We wanted every child to have a rug under their feet when they stepped out of bed. We got everybody fluffy pajamas. We put bulbs in corridors so they didn't have to walk down to dark toilets. All the showers worked. We put in a hairdressing room. In fact, we put mirrors in because we discovered that some of the girls had never seen their own reflection because the orphanages were so poor, so broken down in 1998 because the Russian economy had just crashed. There wasn't a penny in the budget for orphanages and there was 950,000 orphans in Russia at the time. So there was no mirrors. Like imagine a teenage girl and like no mirrors. So we put up mirrors. We brought a Mac, I don't know if you know Mac makeup, I'm sure you do. We brought a Mac makeup girl in from Dublin and she had, you know the way they all look like dolls and they had a, she had a big leather belt with all the brushes on them. And they thought <laughs> she was like Miss World. And, um, <laughs> and then we did, we did light stuff like that. And then we did also, we did very heavy stuff. Like we found all of their siblings because siblings were separated. Mm. So if you're cleverer than your brother or slower than your brother or sister, you're sent to orphanage, say for level six, your brother might be brighter than you. He'd go to orphanage level seven. If you had a very slow brother, he might go to orphanage three. And so he wouldn't have an educational curriculum. He'd only have say bricklaying or something like that. So all of these children then started coming to us and telling us, can you please find my brother? Can you please bring my sister here? Of course we couldn't because we only, we would a finite amount of beds. And um, but anyway, we did find it took us about five years. We found all of the brothers and sisters, and uh, that, and and grandmothers. We found dads and moms in prisons. Alcohol being the biggest problem because when communism stopped and capitalism started, people didn't know how to cope. They went from always having a job, always having a car, always having a brown jumper, brown shoes, brown ladder. They went then to having nothing, just nothing. So. Gorbachev to the West was a wonderful person who got rid of communism. To people in Russia, he's not a wonderful person because he didn't put anything in to replace it. Hmm. So the only thing that replaced it was a bottle of vodka that people were like, hooch, that people were making themselves. Dirty, filthy, cheap diesel, it was like. And so half the nation was drinking. And as a result then, in I'm not sure what America's like, but in, our, in Russia, if you're an alcoholic or a drug addict, the police come and take your children away and put them in an orphanage, and you never see them again. Because they have this belief that the collective, that the state is better for your child than the individual. And that's born out of communism, communist thinking.
0: That is as socialist, as communist as you get.
1: Exactly. So whereas in Ireland, we've never thought that way. You know, It's always been the family unit, the family, the family, the family. So as a result, they had a huge amount of orphans. So Putin had a huge task on his hands, Trying to solve that problem because there was orphanages on every street corner. We put in basketball camps, we brought in an amazing American basketball player who lives in Dublin, Jerome Westbrooks. The first black person they'd ever seen. They'd never seen black skin before because it's a very white country. (laughs) And Jerome had dreadlocks. He's a great friend of And he's like six foot six. And Jerome unc-
0: stands out a bit.
1: Yeah. And particularly in a forest in Russia, he got out of the ladder <laughs> and he unrolled himself out. And like the kids were like, they'd never seen black skin before. So they were looking at the palms of his hands to see why they were paler than the. They were pulling his shorts up to see the black go all the way up his legs. Like they were complete. It was like he was an alien to them. Well, because it's such a white environment. They just, it's a, such a. The Iron Curtain kept it just like something from, you know, lost in time, really. But they were so kind, so warm, so welcoming to us all. As I say, the villagers were, it was such a poor place. It was like a picture from, I'm joking, not from a children's old fairy tale book, you know, the snow on the roofs, the long icicles hanging, ducks, geese running around the place. Like the, if you put the poverty one side to one side, it was so picturesque. Our kids, initially, very low self-esteem, as all orphans would have. And then slowly but surely, we kind of built that. So here's a story now, James, for you, right? When we went first, all the orphanages' windows were broken over years. We had leaky ceilings, leaky roofs, wet mattresses. Mm -hmm. All the children wet the beds because corridors were long and dark and the toilets didn't work. So all the small children just weed in the beds. Why would you get up? So as a result, then you get these desperate smells. So we got used to the smells in the beginning and you try not to like, you try not to let them see you being repulsed by it, but the smells were horrendous. But the worst thing for us was, I'm coming around to a doggy story. The worst thing for us was that Irish are huggers. We hug all the time and it's probably not appropriate in today's world to be hugging children in an institution. But back then we were allowed to do anything we wanted. So we were big huggers and kissers and so when we hugged the children in the very early stages this happened to all of us you would feel something between you and them and the next thing you would see a long pink tail because they all had pet rats so they kept pet rats, pet rats. they kept pet rats okay. in their beds and in their bedrooms they were the only pets they had white big country rats with long pink tails and we were freaked out by this. We were, as Irish women, we were... <laughs> not
0: the way we do this in Ireland. Yeah.
1: And so we got somebody in, we exterminated all of the rats, and we replaced it with kennels and dogs and puppies. Mm. And we've, it was one of our programs because we felt the children needed to learn how to nurture, how to... Now, we bought all the children strollers, we put baby dolls in them, because they don't have a family ethos at all. We were trying to break down the institutionalization from day one. Mm. And I had a huge team around me of people like I'm the one that does the talking, but I mean, there's many Irish that have been out there and extraordinary Irish people that I brought out. I brought out experts that knew, I did not know how to get 200 clean beds. I didn't know how to get 200 clean heads. Um, I didn't know how to build self-esteem, but I knew how to find people that did. So I have, if I have a gift it's that I have the gift to spot amazing people and then haul them into what I'm doing. If I have a gift, that's it. And, uh, and so I did that for 25 years. And uh, I worked beside the most amazing Russian people who in the beginning didn't trust us. But once they knew we were, because they didn't trust Westerners at all, actually. But once they knew we weren't political and we weren't religious, they could relax. We weren't there selling Jesus we weren't there selling politics, we were there for children, and we stayed totally focused on that.
0: And eventually that reputation got her over to Moscow.
1: Yes, it did get as far as Moscow. So by my 24th, 23rd year, I was driving my car in Dublin, my daughter was just about to get married, and I get a phone call in my car to say, this is the Kremlin, can you take call? <laughs> and I thought, oh my God. Um I, yeah yeah it
0: could be good news bad news is it not is it even real
1: and uh so i pulled over and they said well, you've just been nominated for order of friendship oh. uh which is putin gives them out every year himself personally to the leading westerners in the country
0: it's the highest distinction that a non russian citizen can get
1: yeah and um so i flew in with patricia who was a woman who works on the charity with me another irish woman. And uh, the two, it was hilarious, the whole experience. I mean, we got to Moscow airport. Now we'd been there obviously hundreds of times, but never in a posh way. (laughs) So suddenly like this girl from a James Bond movie is standing at Moscow airport. She's stunning. The big fur hat, magnificent coat. There's a presidential car waiting for us, blue light flashing. We're taken to Putin's private hotel, like two housewives from Dublin, like on tour. And like, we were like, You know, we were were afraid to speak in case the walls were listening. So we were kind of put like, you know, this really amazing Soviet hotel owned by him. Oh, well, owned by the government, but it's only for government business. Mm -hmm. Soldiers kind of on the doors and all that, which we all thought we thought was hilarious. Like we were totally loving this experience, you know.
0: You can't have the orphanage people.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Next morning, cavalcade into the Kremlin through the streets of Moscow, blue lights flashing like, you know, the best of the, like, mafia mobsters, you know? Mm -hmm. Into, through the gates of the Kremlin, and then into this big golden room, which is like, you've probably seen it on TV, because I've seen Putin actually coming through these giant golden doors on the TV. Mm -hmm. So again, I still had in my head, this was like the Wizard of Oz, like, is he going to be this enormous wizard, or is he, you know? And, And of course, the Wizard of Oz was a small little man pulling the strings behind the curtains. So I was brought to my table in this elaborate room. I didn't know that we'd even see him on the day. I kind of thought we'd see him in the distance. We might get a picture in the distance, you know. I was brought to the head table and the, to my left was the patriarch, the Pope of Russia. And I'm not religious. So I thought I won't I might burst into flames because, I, in fact, I'm anything but religious. And I thought, how am I going to talk to this man for two hours? I was looking at the diamonds on his hat. I was looking at the diamonds thinking, if I just could just sell that hat, I'd never have to fundraise again.
0: He was wearing the full... The he was full, wearing uh, the
1: full... Uh, there must have been 10 carat diamonds. Like all...
0: We'll say his dress uniform. Yeah, wow. exactly.
1: Uh, and I'm thinking fundraising. I'm thinking, imagine how long it would take me to raise money to just... If I had one of those stones <laughs> and, uh, but I thought, How, what am I going to talk to him about for the whole dinner? Because I have nothing. I just, I, 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 don't do religion. And this chair beside me was empty. All the food was laid on the table, a beautiful kumchatka crab. But the table beside me, to my right, all the food was all covered in plastic vacuum packed, which I thought was a bit odd because mine wasn't. And um, so the starters were laid on. The, and I, I didn't put two and two together, um, as to why the person beside me would have all their food wrapped in plastic. And I kind of didn't pay any attention. And then this huge, big security guy comes over with the w- curly wires coming out of his ears to say, Mrs. Deegan, the president of Russia will be sitting to your right for dinner. And I, I swear I could feel my knees knocking for about like, my
0: knee-
1: <laughs> I don't think my knees ever knocked before in my entire 58 years. My life was like, it's really weird. Your knees do knock, actually. It's a genuine thing. And uh, I thought, oh my Jesus, how, where, what, how, what do I talk to? <laughs> like, <laughs> what do I talk? To? Did, did you say to him, like, did you watch Game of Thrones?
0: Religion or politics? Did you, did you Religion Game or of Pod-
1: Thrones. I was thinking, well, I asked him, did he watch Game of Thrones? Because I had just finished it. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking, him, like, do say, what do you talk, like, what? I didn't want to talk to him about politics. It wasn't appropriate to talk about orphans. We're sitting at a table with golden cutlery. It's not appropriate to talk about even orphanages here. It's so inappropriate. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was, it was, there's no point in saying he was evil. There wasn't flames coming down his nostrils. There's no point in me trying to make that up and say there was, there wasn't.
0: But he is short in stature.
1: Well, I tell you now, he's the very same height as me and I'm about five foot eight because we were looking at him, I wore flat shoes and we were exactly eye to eye and he is short. He's like.
0: Good thing you wore flat shoes that day. I purposely
1: did. I (laughs) purposely did because I suspected and he stands like a poker, you know, because his his razor like he stands. So, but he's a judo expert. So I suppose he's fit and all that. And I'm not going to try and say I'm not an apologist for him. I'm anti-war. I'm 1000% anti-war, you know, and I've since written to him about my thoughts on that because I just felt really there's no point in getting a medal. If he respected me enough to give me a medal and an order of friendship, well, then he's going to respect me enough to listen to what I have to say. There's no point in having a medal and then being a, an apologist for the person. So I felt I needed to say what I needed to say.
0: Can you share what you wrote to President Poole?
1: Not really, I say, not really. I I was open with him and I had an address, you know, and that would have gotten it somewhere close to him, but he's busy maybe from my letters, just that bit busy. Um, you
0: don't have a pen pal yet? He hasn't replied? You
1: no, know, if he replies, I will let you know. Okay. but. I had to say what I had to say, and I just felt well. I've said it now, you know. I'm disapp- I'm so disappointed. I'm so disappointed in ha- what's happened, and like words fail me. I mean, disappointed isn't the right word, but like I watched Russia being built for the last twenty five years. I watched Moscow. Moscow twenty five years ago, like was an absolute <laughs> kip, and uh, there wasn't a restaurant hardly you could eat in or drink in. Never mind where I worked in the in the provinces, filthy, dirty. Soviet, broken, everything broken everywhere. Broken pipes, broken beds, broken everything. And the hotels we stayed in, prostitutes everywhere, pimps with guns on their hips beside us in restaurants, the Irish. Like I mean in the worst kind of restaurants in our hotel where we were staying. That was like 25 years ago when we went in. It It was quintessentially what you imagined. And then over the period of his reign, we watched it developing. And we watched hotels improved. Wages improved. I mean, I'm not trying to, I'm just saying this is exactly how we saw it. I'm not trying to butter it up. Mm -hmm. Or Moscow turned from what to me always looked like Gotham City dark, you'd be afraid of going around the corner. It was always kind of creepy. You'd be terrified. Everybody needs to see your passport. There's police all over the streets. It turned into like a stunning city like cherry blossom trees everywhere, parks everywhere. The pavements were all fixed, there was wheelchair access. Like it just, it just became like more like a European city. Mm -hmm. I also have very good friends in Russia at the top of the social pile because I was networking and mingling for fundraising purposes. Um, And I have very, very dear friends who would be big celebrities in Russia. And they were so proud of their country and they were so proud that it looked so amazing. Flower shops like you have never seen. And then I was just uh, like my own Russian friends. I just thought. There's no way he's going to start this. This is just not gonna happen, this war. It's never. There's no way he's going to go over the border. I just could not believe that happened. And I just couldn't believe he I just couldn't believe that, that they did it. I just couldn't believe it. I just can't I still can't believe what's happened.
0: What do you think, after having spent a few hours with them and having spent so much time in Russia and having so many Russian friends who I presume you're still in contact with, what do you think has gone? Wrong. Some people say, "Oh, he's trying to create a legacy because he's ill." Or what? What are your thoughts?
1: Uh, I don't believe that. I don't get political mm-hmm. because the day I start doing that, I get into hot water. You know, I'd love to sit down and talk to him about it. You know, but uh, nobody in the equation—absolutely nobody in this equation. But <laughs> you know, the day I sat with him, he was extremely reasonable. We spoke for three hours. We did a three hour dinner. And um, so we had a lot of conversation because we chatted for the whole dinner. And uh,
0: in, in Russian or English?
1: In English. And he speaks English. He speaks German. He may speak Italian. I'm not sure. Russians are all, they're very highly educated.
0: So his English was better than your Russian? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, okay.
1: um, we had a brilliant interpreter between our two shoulders. So he's never left without words. You know, that's all set up kind of. So it all runs perfectly mm. smoothly. And uh, he's a diplomat at the end of the day. Well, he was a diplomat, certainly. I mean, he spoke to me about Irish poetry. To my shame, he knew more about Irish poets than I did.
0: <laughs> Maybe he'd studied up before he had dinner with you.
1: Yeah. well, I didn't know that I was going to have dinner with him. I might have, I <laughs> where do you start with that? One? I'm glad I didn't know because I wouldn't, I mean, you wouldn't sleep for a week if you knew you were going to Sit with him (laughs) for fairness. I mean, I'm so disappointed in what I, I mean, devastated. Not disappointed is underselling it. I'm brokenhearted about it. Um, I'm brokenhearted about the fact that there's so much negativity about Russians now. I mean, Russian people are good people. A lot of them are terrified to speak up. Of course, I didn't like all of his policies all the way along. The policies say on gay rights and all that. I mean, people used to say to me, how can you work in a country like that? Why are you supporting a country like that? I didn't care about any of that because I said, I'm sorry, we are here for the children. We do not look left or right. We are here for the children. If I went to work in India, I wouldn't like their policies on A, B or C either. If I went to work Mm -hmm. in Iran or Iraq or Kabul, I wouldn't like their policies on women or whatever. So I didn't care about their policies on anything. My job was to look after the children. He left me alone to do that for 25 years and he let me do anything we wanted to do. Like don't for a second think they didn't know everything we were doing because the FSB as in the KGB know everything the women in the hotels watch what you're doing they listen you know all of that it's part of their culture to do that so we were the most boring people because if they were waiting for state secrets <laughs> <laughs> like, we were discussing like, Homeland. You know, we, we were discussing like TV programs on the train. Like it was not like we were just. <laughs>
0: Don't talk about Homeland. homeland. That, 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 that's not <laughs> the show to talk about. But do
1: you know what I mean? Like we were talking about stuff that was like our lives, our children, ch- solving children's problems, endless, endless, endlessly trying to solve children's problems. And that's all we ever talked about for 25 years. So I'd say they fell asleep at an early stage listening to our conversations Mm. because we just weren't that interesting.
0: Well, clearly you were vetted when they awarded you that high honor. Well, I think that is a good place for us to draw a close on this. I did want to ask if you'd ever had a chat with Violetta and her family about their impressions.
1: Yes, I did. And of course, they all say there's absolutely no Nazis there. The whole thing is just completely, it's just not true. Mm-hmm. They're living in a democratic society. They don't want Russians there. They don't really acknowledge that people have been killed in Donbass, which, of course, the Russians are convinced thousands have died there. We now have thirty or 40,000 refugees living in Ireland, and we've another 150,000 on their way. We're taking in 200,000 mm. Um, I don't understand why America's response is so slow. I just don't understand that because we need, like, Ukraine is on the move. There's like 5 million people displaced. We can't manage it on our own. We're overwhelmed by it. So every country in the world needs to put their welcome T-shirts on, you know, not just us because we're on the doorstep. Everybody needs to do this. I I just don't understand why we need wars in this day and age. It makes me, it just makes me, it's just, I just find it shocking and I'm not really a feminist, but it horrifies me that there's just always like 15 men around the table when you see every single TV show about these meetings they have.
0: I think it would be a lot different if we had a few more women in the room. Yes. I'm all for that. And Debbie Deegan, you are an extraordinary woman and thank you for helping get Tasha back to Violetta and making that bit of the story a little bit more palatable.
1: It was an absolute pleasure.
0: Thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Lovely to meet you.
0: I did get to see the video of Violetta reuniting with Sasha, and it's so powerful. And the work that Debbie has done is so inspiring. We will share a link to that video in today's show notes. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode, and it has brought you some happiness and light in these rather dark times. I'd like to thank you for joining us. And if you enjoyed our conversation with Debbie Deegan, I want to encourage you to follow The Long Leash in your favorite podcast app and do us a favor by telling a friend or two, perhaps at the dog park or wherever you meet your dog-loving friends about this show. We're also part of Dog Podcast Network, and so we have a whole bunch of other shows, all for dog lovers, that you can find at dogpodcastnetwork.com. If you have a suggestion for someone who may be a good guest for The Long Leash, please visit our website at longleashshow.com and click on the little blue microphone icon towards the bottom right of every page. And you can leave us a message or just get in touch with us through longleashow.com. I want to thank you for joining us today. And we'll see you again next time. From all of us here at Dog Podcast Network, we want to wish you and your dog a very warm aloha.